0: Hello, friends. If you've been listening to Discipleship Conversations for a while, you've probably heard Jeremy and me, Stephen, talking about the importance of listening to God as we live out our lives as followers of Jesus. In fact, we would say that the heart of Christian living is learning to hear God's voice and following Him into the world as disciples. Mission Alive has developed Discipleship Cohorts to help with this process. Discipleship Cohorts are a small group of Christians who meet weekly, to encourage healthy disciplines of listening and following God. Discipleship cohorts are a powerful, reproducible tool for spiritual growth, church renewal, and leadership development. No matter where you are in your journey as a disciple of Jesus, discipleship cohorts will stretch you and help you listen more closely to God, and we will equip you to start your own discipleship group. New cohorts start in January, May, and September with leaders from all over the country. To join a group or just to ask questions, email us at discipleship at or go to missionalive.org and look for discipleship cohorts.
1: Welcome to Discipleship Conversations, a Mission Alive podcast with Jeremy Hoover and Stephen Carazel.
2: Welcome back, friends, to Discipleship Conversations with Jeremy Hoover and Stephen Carazel. This is part two of our conversation with Seth Bouchel. Stephen, in this part of the conversation, I really enjoyed how Seth talked about metrics that they use to measure church health. In particular, he talked about some things that I think are really counterintuitive. Uh, For example, one of the things he's going to talk about is how churches can exist for a while, and then for whatever reason, they might evaporate or disappear, be gone within a three to five year framework. And yet Seth says those churches can, can be really healthy while they're alive, and the fact that they're gone isn't isn't a failure. Uh, I don't want to say more about that because I don't want to speak for Seth, so I encourage our listeners to really listen in for that. It was a great part of the conversation. What was your takeaway from this second one?
0: I think it's similar. He, he says a lot of things that kind of turn conventional thinking about church on its head as a way of understanding what faithful ministry is and so yeah we're in a culture that is big on legacy on building things that last on uh, trying to keep things uh, growing bigger and better and and all of those things and uh, he just it brings a different approach to uh to growing disciples and i i don't even say growing churches he's about starting churches and but the thing he's most interested in is building things into people that whether or not the church exists for more than five years they're going to have uh they're going to learn behaviors that will that will perpetuate a church in another place uh and wherever they go and so that is just a beautiful thing uh to hear and I, i really i think this could be he offers some really great suggestions that for listeners at the end of this episode that'll be really helpful as, as he kind of piques some interest in everybody. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah so, so with, let's let's go ahead and get into the episode
0: So Seth, you're you're inviting people instead of coming to church, you're inviting people to start their own community to gather their friends sure. uh, together for a community. Some of them are quickly receptive to that. Some of them kind of grow into that. Some of them just like, I don't think that's what I want to do. Yeah. But so those that are, who are willing and interested in that, uh, you know, do you tell them to, you know, go get some chairs, set up in rows, get a communion table. What, what, you know, yeah. what is, what is starting a church? What is inviting someone to start their own church sure. with their friends look like?
3: Well, Uh, I would say in in terms of, you know, not to get too into the weeds in terms of missionary strategy, but we, we tend to follow and are are influenced by a school of thought within the missions world called disciple making movements, church planning movements, that kind of stuff. A lot of that comes in to refer to the last episode. I realized within the monastic community in Abilene, in order to participate in our community, you had to be so incredibly marginalized that you couldn't participate in almost any normal social life. so if, if you were a, a teen kind of runaway or straight out of jail, you could be a meaningful part of our community. If you had a nine to five and a family, you were pretty much never going to cross paths with us because the rhythms of our lives didn't reflect the reality of your schedule. And that's true with the diaspora as well. Uh, so it's, it's very fluid and chaotic trying to start these things, but we tried to keep them very, very simple and keep the elements of them something that the people were working with can really help lead from the beginning. But I also try to tell them as little as possible up front. Uh, I try, I think the, the more the different stages of your ministry align in terms of principle, the easier those transition points are. But for a lot of missionaries, I think that's the difficult aspect is to go from, I'm your friend and we have spiritual conversations to I'm trying to start a church with you. That's a hard shift to go from, I'm trying to start a church with you to actually you should be leading this church. That's a hard shift to go from this, when is this church going to multiply? You're like, wait, multiply, what? It's like, we've known each other for a year. Uh, you know, those are hard pivots to make. And so the more my role can stay sort of catalytic and and support, the easier
0: I I can transition through those phases of relationship. Uh, so what does that look like? Uh, you, I think you've talked about in the past uh, Discovery Bible Studies here. Uh, you know, yeah. someone doesn't need to go through, or do you have a, a missions? I mean, a ministry training, you're not inviting somebody to go to seminary or something right, like that right. to lead the church. You're yeah. equipping them differently. Yeah.
3: We don't do any training with our churches that we plant for them. Uh, they will reproduce what was formative for them in coming to faith. And so they don't almost ever need to be trained in it. We only really end up training people that are, are lifelong church folk because they have been spiritually formed in ways that did not come with skill-based equipping. So they know a lot, but they don't know how to utilize almost any of that in a discipling relationship. So we we don't tend to train. Also part of that is we work in a, in a context that has a pretty low threshold for education. And it's important for me that discipleship does not become a classroom environment. It is not about the transmission of information. It is about personal formation, about growing into the full stature of Christ because a lot of our leaders know less Bible than I do and are better followers of Jesus than I am. So the, the metric of maturity in the kingdom of God can't be information. It has to be the imitation of Christ at some level. But yeah, typically it, it looks a little different depending on whether or not we're working with a more assimilated group in the diaspora. So uh, typical of what sometimes you see overseas, sometimes you're working in a network that is, is often patriarchal and has strong family ties. And if that's the person of peace you run into, they can put 25 people in a room tomorrow because that's how their family network works. Now, that tends to be more common when you're looking at those kind of strategies in a global context like India or West Africa or some of these places you've seen big movements. I think in urban spaces, particularly in post-religious urban spaces, uh, you can't actually assume that somebody has a household to gather. And so when you say, go gather the people you know, those people only may share one relationship in common, and it's the person of peace. They're not a an community that preexisted the start of that church. And so it does matter which one it is, depending on what you try to form as the, as the missionary. If it's a, a family network or a neighborhood network that are already community and are just being discipled into faith, you have a different set of circumstances in terms of the relational dynamics than 12 strangers who only have one person in common in the room that group of people, you're going to have to help learn to be a community at the same time that they're learning to be a church, rather than to learn how to be a church community in light of being a community that already exists.
2: So the thing that really strikes me, Seth, as you're sharing this, is you've already said to this person, no, you can't come to church with me. Gather the folks that you know, and I will help you start a church. Mm -hmm. How do you transmit or teach some of this without being the primary presence in the group so that you're able to equip the person you've met with to effectively lead the church? Sure. Uh, So
3: all of our churches start with a a practice called Discovery Bible Study. It's basically just a script of inductive questions that we ask of scripture. So we get in the room, first meeting of any church. Let's go around the circle. What are we thankful for? Let's, let's go around again. What's a need or a struggle in your life? How can we help each other with those needs this week? Then we're going to read scripture and just ask you four questions. Okay, what does this teach about who God is? What does this teach about how to live? How will we put this into practice this week? And who can we share this with? That's kind of the, the bare bones of how any of these groups start. And then as they engage more and more in scripture, and you're asking this question, okay, how do we put this into practice? What does this teach us about God? We just read a passage on baptism. How do we put that into practice? What does that say about God and how to live? We just read a passage on Eucharist. How do we put that into practice? And so they begin to make contextual decisions appropriate to the way that they want to incorporate these things into into what they are as a community. Uh, So just by way of example, for the diversity, we've got four churches that are all gang affiliated kids between 11 and 18 in the West Bronx uh we help build a music studio for them in the apartment where they meet a lot of their worship incorporates poetry and rap that they write about their lives and about their faith and it's a lot of spoken word by 12 year olds uh we got a Dominican church in the north bronx they've got like 20 minutes of christian karaoke in the middle of every church they literally put up the karaoke machine on the tv they put random spanish gospel songs on there the people that are not converts will put random songs you know you'll get like some spanish gospel song i've never heard of and then you'll get under the bridge by the red hot chili peppers and you're like all right well this guy's new to church um <laughs> the we had a church pre-covid it's gone now in the east village it was all artists actors musicians they've got 20 minutes of contemplative silence built into the bible study they got to you know ring a uh, buddhist singing bell and sit there and just pray in silence together for 20 minutes now those are very different decisions about how to pray and worship. But all of those decisions were made in the context of reading scripture as a community and saying, how are we going to put this into practice? What does this look like for us to, to pray corporately, to worship corporately? How are we going to do that? And rather than reach for the examples of surrounding churches that made those decisions based on cultures that don't, they don't necessarily share, empower them to make those decisions in the context of their own culture by reading scripture and having to hash this out in dialogue. Uh, which means that there's a tremendous amount of conflict in our churches. I don't think that church plants should avoid conflict. I think they should just strive to have it
2: well. Mm-hmm. So, what is uh, what is your role with a particular group? Are you mm-hmm. present in the in the beginning meetings? Uh, yeah. If so, how do you dissociate yourself so that mm-hmm. people aren't looking to you as the leader? Yep.
3: So it depends if it's a first-generation group or not. I would say the majority of our churches have been planted by other churches we planted. And so if I can help it, a a second, third-generation church, I'm not going to go. There's no reason for me to be there. Uh, And actually, you know, you have to check this for immaturity, but there is a tremendously uh, validating piece of feedback of when, you know, you're talking to somebody and they're like, oh, you started that church? I didn't even know that. And you're like, yeah, Uh, you know, you phased out in such a way that you're not even really a part of the the self-perception of this group Mm -hmm. that's rewarding uh if you're emotionally healthy (laughs) but um yeah i think the i'm gonna start out by asking those questions within probably the first two or three weeks i'm gonna try to stop facilitating so the second third fourth week this thing meets depending on the dynamic of the group uh i'm gonna pick somebody oftentimes i'm gonna pick the most skeptical and antagonistic person in the room and say hey uh I'm gonna ask the same questions I asked last week. If I texted you those questions, could you facilitate this week? And it's like, yeah. Cause it's not, the person facilitating is not the teacher. They're not the authority in the
2: room. They're just mm-hmm. prompting the questions for the group to engage scripture. So and it's not that that, hard to do. Yeah, that person may not even be the person of peace that you not relied on to gather the folks.
3: No, and oftentimes I'm gonna steer away from making the person of peace facilitator because I don't want to concentrate leadership so early in a group that you can't develop multiple leaders. Mm. If that person's already hosting and working logistics, I'm probably going to not have them facilitating for a while so that, so that there's a more, uh, evenly distributed power dynamic throughout the room. Because again, I, we're trying to develop leaders very early. And what that means is they're often going to reproduce whatever forms of leadership they've seen in, in their own life experience you know, spoiler alert, there's not a lot of good models of leadership in a context like the Bronx, it tends to be abusive, it tends to be hierarchical. uh, They don't tend to do conflict. Well, almost everybody has this whole laundry list of relationships, they've just cut out of their life. So okay, let's, uh, you know, almost all of the what we're focusing on in the development of a church is the development of its culture. It isn't so important week in week out, whether we're steering people toward the right biblical answers to a particular passage. Are we creating a Christ-like culture in the way they engage scripture, in the way they engage one another, in the way they handle conflict, in the way they integrate new people into this community? If those things are true, I'm willing to, to not swing at a lot of pitches that you know may, may be representative of just wrong conceptions about scripture, or about faith.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So I was intrigued earlier when you, you talked about... Uh, a church might exist for five years, but because of the transient nature of the people in the church, it, it'll be mm-hmm. gone. And in traditional church planning, we would say, well, the, you know, the church wasn't successful. And yet yeah. you've described that as being actually quite a successful church. What are some of the measurements or, or metrics that, that you use to focus yeah. on church health, even in a church that might be gone in three or four years? Right.
3: Well, I, again, I, I think, if, well, I don't know if I said this or not, so I shouldn't say again. I think um, we need to move beyond the the primary metrics that I have often seen in ministry, uh, which is growth and longevity. Neither one of those things is bad and neither one of them is an indication of health, right? Uh, So for example, almost nothing in nature self-replicates more efficiently than cancer. Okay, is that something that's worth multiplying? Nobody would look at that and say, "Well, it grew clearly; it's healthy." Uh, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And similarly, uh, I don't know what you know about produce, but uh, the majority of bananas that we we buy in the American market are uh, are Chiquita Dole bananas. You know the Cavendish banana, which I think does well in the American market because it doesn't have any seeds, and we don't seem to like those. Uh, now that's interesting because. It doesn't have seeds, and it has a much higher yield in fruit, and so fruit companies plant those more. The unfortunate thing is that there is a a kind of rust blight in the tropical parts of the world that's killing banana plants, and because Cavendish bananas don't have seeds, they have no ability to recover from those sorts of ecological disasters. Uh, Their lack of genetic diversity as a population makes them really at risk of being wiped out by changing environmental conditions. I think both of those things are worth meditating on when we're thinking about church planning. Okay, is this worth multiplying? The fact that it's growing is not an indication that this is healthy. And if it does not have the seeds to to produce with some genetic variation, if the only thing it can do is clone itself, then how, how much are we risking the entire thing falling apart because it wasn't allowed to adapt to changing circumstances and changing environments. I think both of those things are pretty important. But for that reason, I'm not often going to count churches. The number of churches doesn't tell me very much. The number of leaders who are discipling people discipling someone else. That's my primary numerical metric. How many people am I discipling? How many of those people are discipling somebody? That I can know and and have a good sense, you know, in the context of some other metrics, the health of our ministry, not just the size of it.
2: So when you are looking, so so you, so what I just heard, I think, is that you continue to stay in touch with, uh, with with members of these churches, not mm-hmm. not physically present in their gathering. Mm-hmm. but in discipling relationships with some of the leaders. Of those
3: yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I don't I don't ever want everyone to draw too strong of a parallel to a biblical character, but, you know, I, I think we see that in Paul. Paul spends very little time in proximity to most of the churches he plants, but he clearly has an mm-hmm. ongoing formation relationship with his leadership. That's sort of what we're we're striving for in this, that we don't know how long anybody we disciple is going to live in New York, We don't know what's gonna happen when they go somewhere else, but are they capable of making disciples where they go? Are they capable of starting these kinds of communities? If they are, there's no reason why leaving our neighborhood is leaving the ministry or the mission. And at the same time, we don't own what they do. They don't belong to us. This is midwifery. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there is a wisdom element to that. But yeah, I think my role transitions pretty early from evangelist to spiritual director and that tends to be where it stays, regardless of what happens to those churches.
2: Now, are, are you discipling the person of peace, the person that you've asked to lead, other emerging leaders, or is it fluid among all three of those?
3: Uh, it's pretty fluid, I would say. I'm going to look for maybe two or three leaders within a group, depending on the size. I mean, the, the okay. average house church probably starts with like four people for us, four or five. Uh, and then as the culture starts to get set, the rest of their relationships... Go. Oh, this is not a cult. All right, we'll come. Um, so, you know, there is there is that early phase where okay, there's four or five people here. It's not unrealistic to to speculate that this might be a dozen or more in a year, but you don't know that. Mm-hmm. And so the early phase is okay. Can we set the culture where these four people are continuing to share what they're learning and disciple the people that aren't a part of this group? If they can do that, and this thing collapses in four months, I don't really care. Great. I'll follow whatever leaders I'm working with when this thing dissolves and they'll start something new and that will also dissolve. And then we'll have to reassess again and say, okay, who's, who's going to go on and start something new. And you just kind of continually support and try to continue to form and encourage those people. But frankly, most of the ministry doesn't get done by us missionaries. It gets done by the people we
0: disciple. Mm -hmm. They, they own it and it's their mission. So when, uh, I mean, that's still, We're. I think we're talking particularly with our listeners here, we're talking about a lot of things we've hit on are, are just a shift in the way we think about a church, from how church operates to how church prolificates to how church, uh, you know, just how we exist within a church, what's our role within a church, and so uh, I think about you know, just letting go of the how long this church lasts, or you know what it's doing within its meetings, yeah, and to let it grow uh, in natural ways that uh, that exists for that culture or that particular family or set of friends within that mm-hmm. culture uh, is just a you know, in a lot of ways, you're you're trusting. I mean, this is a phrase I've I picked up probably in the last I don't know it's probably six or seven years now. But just trusting the Holy Spirit at work in other people. Uh, you just picked it up a couple of years ago. No, I, no, <laughs> about six or seven years ago. Now, I mean, really, I mean, it's like, do I as as an explicit statement? Sure. I'm trusting the work of holy of the Holy Spirit and other people. Yeah. Uh, I think that's something I've that's existed below but i've never really named it and when mm. you name it it allows you to 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 really let go and yeah. to acknowledge when you're when you really have a preference for the way someone should be or the way a community should act yeah. rather than letting the spirit guide uh that group i think it's a powerful yeah. powerful way of operating i would say i'll start at that
3: yeah well i think you know I mean, in an ideal world, Jesus is our model for everything in ministry. That isn't always the case. Uh, I I will confess, but that's, you know, aspirationally what we're going for. Uh, I just don't see Jesus all that invested in the organizational metrics of his ministry. Frankly, I can't even tell you if Jesus started any churches. He started a church. Did he plant churches? I can't tell. And I don't want to get into the business of holding the people I disciple to a standard I don't see Jesus hold his disciples to, whether that be an educational standard, uh, uh, you know, a standard of emotional health. But, you know, I don't, I don't have a sense of when the disciples converted. I know when they started doing ministry, right? Matthew 10, Luke 10, Mark, I think it's four or five, he sends out the 72. Now it's gonna be several chapters later that anybody calls him Christ among his disciples. And when that happens, Peter gets called Satan. So not a great track record for Jesus here. Uh, you know, you lose, I don't know, what is it? 8% of your disciples, one out of 12. Uh, and then the last conversation Jesus has with the apostles in Acts 1.6, they say, is now the time you're gonna restore the kingdom of Israel? And I just imagine that Jesus just sends to heaven with a facepalm, but he does turn over the keys in that conversation we have often been so obsessed with quality control in our ministry and, and so afraid of empowering people to do ministry that we suspect are going to screw it up, that we have created a much higher standard than Jesus has for what qualifies you for ministry and what qualifies you to make a disciple. Uh, the ignorance of Jesus own disciples does not seem to, uh, does not seem to cause him to fear sending them into ministry. And in fact, they don't learn who he is except through doing the work that he sends them to do. That is what I suspect is true for the, the people we encounter in New York. How would they even know who, if Jesus is who he says he is, unless they've been following along and doing ministry, unless they've been working out the implications of this lifestyle and their relationships they already have, how would I expect them to know Jesus is who he says he is based on my testimony, <laughs> you know, uh, and similarly again i'm not a cultural insider to the populations we work with and so how how much of a colonial mentality am i willing to have that i can not only preach the
0: gospel but i can interpret it for them i like the the way of of letting go and uh, the way it's growing you know within uh, within those families within those units and to allow it to have a life of its own uh, to not direct or control that life that it has and to let it dissolve as it needs to.
1: And in a a way,
0: I think you're, I mean, the dissolving of it, I think you've said this before, it doesn't mean that people have lost faith. It just means they're moving away. But if they're equipped to do something, as it dissolves, it opens up the opportunity for other things to form and grow. I think that's right.
3: I think I, this may be controversial. I hope not. Uh, but, you know, I I would argue that when a church dies, any kind of church, whether it's when we planted or, or, you know, Catholic parish or, you know, church Christ from the 1960s, whatever it is, that is grief inducing. But the kingdom of God has lost nothing. When a religious organization dies, the kingdom of God loses nothing. Because, the kingdom of God did not belong to that organization. And those people are still co-workers with God as long as they choose to be. That doesn't mean it's not grief inducing. It is hard. And it's hard for us. I mean, I, you know, I've started more failed churches than almost anybody I know if if they're not existing as failure. That is hard. And it it requires some sort of practice to acknowledge disillusionment and grief and pain and loss. But I have to differentiate between the fact that though this is emotionally difficult for me the kingdom of God has lost nothing. And those can be true at the same time.
0: So let me, let me ask you this question that I asked uh, previously, and what is your discipleship journey? You know, we've got to ask that question in terms of, as you kind of got into this way of, of working, this way of living mm-hmm. from that point, we're kind of, I think we're talking maybe the last eight years, through this process of moving to New York, to this point of the perspective you're speaking from, your own discipleship journey through that, how has that been shaped by the learning of evangelism differently and different people you've encountered? What has that done with you?
3: I I would say a few different ways. I think one, uh, it's changed my hermeneutics because I've gotten to listen to a lot of different people from cultural backgrounds, different than mine interpret scripture. And oftentimes, you know, especially among new new Christians or, or kind of pre-conversion new disciples, they'll have a take on a story that I wouldn't have ever thought of. Uh, but you hear it and you think, actually, that's probably closer to what it means. Uh, now, there's a couple of reasons for that. I think one is uh, I do think that the least of these have a unique perspective uh, posture from which to interpret the gospel, that those of us who grow up from a certain amount of comfort and power probably don't have the ears to hear some of those things. I think also most of the people groups we work with culturally are closer to the culture of scripture than than the culture I grew up in is. Uh, and so they may pick up on on subtext that I don't. Um, I would say one of the other ways that it's really changed me, uh, my prayer practice is much more oriented toward grief and enemies than was ever true before I got into the mission field. Um, You know, we work in a a poor context that has a very high rate of violence. Uh, And so whether it's, it's usually both, but whether it's the stories you hear in evangelism and discipleship, or the, the reconciliation that people are going to have to go through in order to become a healthy community it's a high price and it is it is emotionally exhausting and mission work has taught me i I believe this i don't have any ability to say this is true but i think if you see the eyes if you see the world with the eyes that god does everybody's life is going to break your heart including your own and if you don't if your gospel cannot incorporate disillusionment and and failure and loss and frankly being injured in relationship then you're probably you're probably not uh well positioned for the work because again you know you look at paul's churches all of the pettiness and immaturity there all of the infighting and and mutual criticism i remember one time i was reading through all of paul's letters in a week and realized like other than slavery i think we've dealt with every single one of these issues in the church I think we've dealt with every single issue listed in the Pauline epistles, except library that has a cost. And if I am not able to pray through those emotional experiences, if I, if I feel the need to repress them or avoid them or see them as somehow antithetical to ministry, you know, I, it's hard to, it's hard to endure.
0: So you, uh, that's just the, the way you introduced that, that, that conversation of your prayer shifting more towards grief and enemies uh, is is powerful, and, and the way you explained that was really good. What did you see it shifting from? Um,
3: well, I you know this is a little particular my biography. I've always struggled with verbal prayer. Um, it is not how I express myself to God and so to to lean into that almost always feels performative for me because i'm using and choosing those words because of who's listening not because i talk that way when i'm with myself uh and so randy harris again was a, a big influence on me was my spiritual director for about uh probably 12 years that seems that's not right uh and uh so the, the contemplative life is a big part of my spirituality i, I tend to be on the quiet side with prayer um, but it was the ministry work that sort of populated that a bit more that my own contemplative and quiet time, still the, the basis of my practice, the foundation of my prayer practice, but there are some other disciplines that need to be picked up to account for the, the relational experiences of ministry. And that's, you know, a lot of my grieving practice, which is a regular practice in my prayer life. It's secondhand. And I, I end up asking that a lot. You know, I don't like to ask people if I can pray for them because that may as well be code for, can I do nothing? And I'm not saying that's how prayer is. I'm saying that's how it's heard. That is often how people who are not religious hear that offer. Now, not all of them. And in the Bible Belt, you can get away with things that you may not be able to in a, in a city like New York. But oftentimes if someone shares something hard and you say, can I pray for you? They'll say yes, but it doesn't come across as, as very helpful. Uh, and so one of the things that I've, I've started saying in probably the last five years is, you know, part of my prayer practice is my grief practice. Uh, would it be okay for me to to take some time to grieve that? Now that gets a very different response. Uh, you would take time to grieve for this thing in my life that I just told you about. Yeah, that'd be fine. Uh, that is a very different emotional connection than, can I, I'll pray for that. But it means the same thing.
0: Yeah, that's a powerful statement that prayer is not a disconnected uh, event or activity, uh, which, as you said, can be perceived that way just by using the word prayer and changing it to something that puts me in great connection with what was just experienced and the person experiencing it.
3: Well, again, I I'm not trying to be controversial, but I might accidentally be in a second. But I think uh, if we're going to be doing the kind of missionary work that I, I think our context requires in terms of, you know, we're a globalizing, urbanizing, secularizing nation. and So that's that's the context for the next however long. That's the, what is going to be required for competent ministry often. Um, We need to be able to pray in more ways than than just intercessory. There's nothing wrong with intercessory prayer. I'm not putting it down, but it's only one kind of prayer and it it has taken too much primacy in the spiritual formation of of mission work, I think. Because often what I've experienced is you get in a room and the entire time in prayer is praying for the work, praying for the ministry, praying for the growth of the team, praying, and it's just a laundry list of telling God what to do in our work. Now, I'm not convinced that I need to to persuade God to care about this mission. Uh, Why am I trying to cajole God into caring about this ministry as if I care about it more than God does, or as if I'm more aware of what the needs in my ministry are than God is. Mm -hmm. And so there need to be certain forms of prayer that are more about taking my own relational emotional experiences and giving God the space to give commentary or guidance there. Rather than constantly trying to give God guidance about what I want to see in my own work,
0: I love that. I really uh, like that. And uh, the more I encounter people whose lives are just painful and difficult, the the more I realize I don't have words, yeah, to say to them, or yeah. words even to pray about them. But I find myself. I, you've kind of given words to what I think I'm feeling as I encounter uh, people, and it's just it it brings grief to know Absolutely. their story and to sit with them with that. Right uh, is well, is a powerful movement. Yeah.
3: Well, I, I think you know a lot of the the missionaries that we've trained, and and this is true for for preachers and pastors we worked with as well. You know, Americans don't tend to do dissolution and grief well uh and i think that's a theological failure the the story i've told more often than almost any other in evangelism is jesus raising lazarus from the dead and i think it's worth asking the question why would god grieve for something god is going to undo if if god takes time to grieve things that won't even be true in a minute what is it that i'm afraid of in in letting what breaks god's heart break mine uh, and similarly, you know, the, the evidence of the resurrection are Jesus's scars. New life is not the same thing as erasing wounds from the past. And so I don't need to deny, it's not a denial of the resurrection that I would be willing to grieve and hear the stories about how you
0: got those scars. That's really, uh, really good. I, I like, I mean, I think there's a lot that, you know, Henry Nowen has taught people about uh the woundedness and what the woundedness can do in ministry and i think there's uh there's more awareness of that now than there was uh some years ago and it's important to keep bringing that up because that's where we live uh in in that woundedness so is there something about new york or that you have to that this works in new york or you know i I don't live in New York, I live in the DFW sure. uh, complex of towns mm-hmm. and counties and all of that stuff. Jeremy lives in uh, in, in Canada, in uh, Sarnia, a different kind of city and culture. Sure. Uh, what, what you know, does this kind of, does this stuff work? What are we looking for uh, to I, enter this yeah. kind of work? What are our Let's, listeners looking for in their lives? Well, I let
3: me make sure I understand the question correctly. When you say it works, what do you mean?
0: Well, I guess I'm saying there's a geographic sense. People go to New York and there's all kinds of things in New York. Sure. What What? Uh, did you have to go to New York to experience this? And to no. what? what's here for those of us that aren't in New York City yeah. and all of its complex uh, boroughs and places well, and things like that? Uh, again, I, I do think um, New York is a
3: great classroom for ministry because you can accumulate experiences so quickly uh people tend to live outside there's lots of different cultures there is an interruptibility to new york culture that would be rude in other contexts uh it's kind of a third culture space so nobody really belongs here which means anybody can kind of belong here so there are some real advantages to it as a missionary classroom but no i don't think there's anything special about it in terms of what we're talking about Uh, You know, we've had churches migrate out of New York, go back to Taiwan, Seoul, uh, Santa Monica. You know, (laughs) we've got teams we're working with in in Panama City, in Panama, in Singapore. We've gone over and worked in Greece and Italy and trained teams in in Birmingham and England. So, no, I, I think these are, again, these are relational skills that can be adapted to a lot of contexts. That being said, we don't live in a mechanistic world. You don't put the coin in the slot and know what's going to come out. Uh, These are ways of engaging in relationship that require discernment. And you have no agenda for the other person. You have an agenda for yourself to, to harken back to the last one. And so in the sense of, does this work? No, not really. Uh, Because we don't have any control over this. All you control is your preparation and your effort, right? Uh, In that sense, and granted, I'm going to get out of my depth quickly because I don't like baseball, but it's like baseball. You can't control what pitches you're going to get. You can control your preparation in terms of when it comes across the plate, have I done the work to know whether or not that's a good swing? Uh, That being said, you know most of it emotionally, again, registers as failure. I start a thing, six months later, it's gone. Those people went on to do a thing, fantastic, but I wasn't necessarily a, a real part of that. I mainly got the phone calls when things went poorly. Okay, that—that's I understand that. That that is a part of my role that I will often harvest things I did not plant. Most of the fruit that we've experienced in ministry wasn't stuff I planted. It's from stuff that that person met a person much earlier in their life than me. And it came to fruition when I was around. Uh, And similarly, I just hope that God pays that forward because we've planted so many things that I have no idea what happened to them. This doesn't belong to us. This is midwifery, and and so in that same sense, these are ways that are respectful and loving, and and tend to help people form more intimate relationships and have better kinds of conversations. What will that
0: result in? I don't know. You don't control that. So, let's say this has piqued the interest of some of our listeners. They're involved in, you know, just. Churches as we kind of know them, mm-hmm. institutional, organized. Uh, they're what, what, uh, but they're like thinking, what? How could I, how could I engage this? And mm-hmm. I don't even know what that might look like. They don't know what that looks like, but it sounds yeah. interesting, and and it's there's some kind of compelling nature to it that mm-hmm. it's pulling me there. But what's something that would help me discern or engage with that?
3: Uh, well, here's a couple of shameless plugs and then I'll see if I can't backpedal. Um, we, we do uh, equipping work. That's a big part of my job. So in, in addition to church planning, I'm technically the director of equipping for our organization exponent group. Uh, we have essentially an e-course that's the same set of skills we use to train missionaries in uh, that is adapted to an electronic course so that it's a better pace and platform for existing churches. So yeah, if I, if I mentioned already, I think I did the Singapore, Panama, California, uh, we're working with North Davis and Arlington. You know, these are traditional churches. They have they have good programs. They have healthy leadership. They need some help on skill-based equipping so that their members can develop these kinds of relationships. That uh, will serve that way. What we tell organizations is, we don't want to train your whole organization. Give me your five to eight most highly motivated leaders. I want them to be lay people if you can swing it. Uh, and at the end of about six to eight months, or, you know, if they're well motivated, maybe four to six months, uh, they should be capable of reproducing that learning in, in concurrent waves. So I'll work with this wave one team. I will coach them to coach, to train the next wave. Then those two can kind of leaven that learning throughout their church. But I think that's especially important for a few reasons. One, you learn ministry by doing ministry. You don't learn ministry by studying it. Um, I think two, we have a cult of expertise in the church planning world. We have a cult of strategy and a cult of expertise that we are always looking to the outside expert, the outside consultant, the the strategy that will tell us how to ensure the results we want to see. And we just don't have that kind of guarantee in, in ministry. That's not a realistic way of looking at the world. So I want churches to learn from themselves. I want it to, to slowly build momentum from within so that for the the bulk of the congregation organization we work with when they think about how did we learn this my name's not coming up uh they learn this by practicing this in their own context by by wrestling with it in their own discernment we did some coaching and equipping but you know largely again the the measure of its health is can it reproduce itself if it requires me to reproduce itself i probably didn't form it very well uh, the other thing, if, you know, if you're not any course learner, uh, I would be happy for you to pick up a copy of either one of the, the books we've written. One is called Mosaic. It's kind of a cross-cultural handbook for ministry, for people working in cities. The other one's called Lost Faith. Uh, it's kind of theology and spiritual formation for post-religious people. So those would be two of the resources we have. But if if you're looking to do this and, and not get a commercial for our ministry, uh, kudos. But I think... It starts with paying attention to the people you interact with every day. Who are the people you see when you pick your kids up from school? Who's your barber or your stylist? Who's your mechanic? Do you know the names of waiters at the restaurants where you're regular? You know, are, pay attention to the people that you engage with every day and the conversations they have and the things they're worried about and care about and try to engage them as what you are. Which is a follower of Jesus. You don't have to have all the answers. It's not recruitment. It's not persuasion or a sales pitch. If you know how your identity as a disciple relates to the things they're talking about, and you can say it without an agenda for them, and you can say it without trying to use them as a source of your own self validation, then you have all of the requisite skills to do evangelism. You have all of the requisite skills to make a disciple because it's, you know, we're holding ourselves to the standard that Jesus holds his disciples to. Thankfully, it's not very high.
2: Yes. Yeah. So Seth, if, uh, if somebody wanted to learn more about you or, or maybe send you a follow up to this interview, uh, mm-hmm. how could they, how could they learn more about you? How can yeah. they contact you?
3: Yep. Uh, you can There's our website, which is, uh, exponentgroup.org. Um, my email is just my first and last name at exponentgroup.org. I will hesitantly say, feel free to, to email me, uh, But yeah, the, those would be the the online platform or or book or e-course stuff would be the easiest way to contact us. I would say if you're looking for ministry connections in your city, uh, there are probably people in your region who are already better equipped to work with you than we are. Uh, I would be willing to bet we might know those people. So if you're going to reach out to us as a ministry, my preference might be to refer you to someone local rather than try to do it ourselves but we try to maintain a pretty strong ministry network around the country for that reason. Uh, but again, you know, we're, I don't think there's any such thing as an expert in urban global ministry. Uh, and so if expertise is the qualification to make disciples, it would make sense why we're not making very many disciples in that context. Uh, that being said, we're not experts. And so if we can help you not repeat mistakes, I would be very happy to do that. I would love to help an organization make new mistakes, but I can't tell you what's gonna work and I can't guarantee you results because that's not what's on offer in ministry. Uh, So again, we may be able to help shorten
2: people's learning curves, but I don't wanna pretend that we're ministry gurus. Well, we've been talking today with Seth Bouchel Seth, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a a great conversation, and we've really enjoyed visiting with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to this Discipleship Conversation. We invite you to share this episode and tune in next time for another conversation. We also invite you to subscribe and rate the podcast through your favorite podcast app. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments and questions to media at missionalive.org. Check out the episode show notes and learn more about the podcast and other Mission Alive media resources at missionalive.org. media intro and outro music is by AudioNautics.com. Mission Alive works to bring about the holistic transformation of marginalized communities through starting and renewing innovative churches that address the most challenging issues faced by their neighbors. Learn more about what we do and how to connect at missionalive.org.